been a, a wonderful blessing for me to come down to Corpus again and enjoy the hospitality, uh, especially of Sean and Claudia, who we've been staying with, and Joanna there, and my new friend. As we was traveling back, of course, this is the first time I've met Claudia, traveling back from the fellowship conference, and uh, Sean put Lloyd-Jones on in the car or sermon, and they was talking about something he brought up uh, on the front seats there, and uh, yeah, I, I kind of agreed where Lloyd-Jones was coming from, and um, Sean was coming from there, but Claudia wasn't quite the taken at first, but the thing she said, uh, uh, but I want a Bible first for this. Do you have a Bible verse? And I thought, you've got a good wife there. <laughs> okay, then if we, we open to Romans uh, 14. Now, the reason we're turning to this chapter is because I was asked a question, I think this is very useful. The question was that without falling into legalism, <coughs> what is the balance between keeping your and enjoying your Christian liberty but not making another brother or sister stumble? So we, we stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read Romans 14, the whole chapter. Give me a couple of seconds to turn. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he made anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him or them. Who are you to pass judgment on the servants of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days or every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord, Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, 
As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. (coughs) For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, do not destroy. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual building. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourselves and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask now that by your Holy Spirit you would show us wondrous things, wondrous truths out of your Holy Word that we may apply to our lives and live for your glory. Help us now, we ask. Give us manna from heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay then, so obviously that was a large passage that I just read, so we're not going to cover it all intensely in one sermon but what I'm going to pull out now is merely first of all it's a few basic principles which I feel will really help us answer that question I poised at the beginning and the question was to remind you that without falling into legalism what is the balance between keeping and enjoying your Christian liberty your freedom to do certain things but not making a brother stumble and that's a good question because there does need to be a balance here in some circles the the Christianity they practice tends to to read like a long list of rules and and regulations and they they tend to do away with liberty uh, uh, you know not just their own liberty but everyone else's liberty altogether Uh, for anyone else whom they see enjoying uh, the Christian freedoms they accuse them of being lawless but then of course at the other extreme you have those who know all about Christian liberty that they're not bound by all these rules and regulations but they show very little concern for Paul's instruction here 
on not letting your liberty be the cause of others stumbling. And so then, uh, to give you some background on this chapter here, the Apostle has written this to these this instruction to the Christians living in Rome in the first century AD in order to address certain problems with their relationships with one another in this church. You see, the church in Rome was made up of Christians from all different backgrounds. Some ethnically Jewish before their conversion, some were pagan before their conversion, some were high class, some were low class and so forth. And they were also at different stages in the Christian life. As Paul describes them here, some are strong in the faith and some are weak in the faith. So they are at different levels in their understanding of the Christian faith. And so all of this was causing divisions. It was causing factions within this church because they were not acting in love towards one another. Uh, They had different opinions on certain things and they were despising and judging and being impatient and unloving to to others who differed. And, And to address this, by the way, was primarily why Paul's letter to the Romans was written. Uh, When the Apostle in chapters 1 to 11, he sets forth there all that marvellous doctrine and that great exposition there of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul's aim in doing that was not to give them some kind of in-depth Bible study on Christian doctrine, but it was really in order to address all these relational problems that he now gets about addressing from and being specific about from chapters 12, 13 and 14 onwards. You see, in order to address these relationship problems, Paul, he first sets forth the the gospel to demonstrate to these Christians that they are just in need of God's mercy and to be saved by Jesus Christ. You are just in need as your, your brother and sister or someone else you're looking down upon and despising or, or judging. And so, who are you to be not? Who are you not to be merciful to another? You see, that is Paul's reason for giving those that in-depth exposition of the gospel there in chapters one to eleven. And so, then, uh, the the first thing here regarding all of this that I want you to be aware of about these different groups who had all these differences of opinions on certain matters of the Christian faith, the first thing I want you to be aware of tonight is that they are all Christians. And by Christians, I mean true ones. Because notice at the end of verse 3, Paul says that God has welcomed or accepted these people. You may have a a different opinion on certain things, Paul says, but we are to welcome and receive them as God has welcomed and accepted them. And also in in verse 1, when Paul speaks there of the one who is weak in faith, that is literally, as it's translated in uh, some translations, weak in the faith. The definite article is there. Is there, you see... Paul is not saying here that this person who is weak in faith, he's not saying he is weak in faith as in lacking assurance. This man is not weak here 
because he's like the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, that's not what Paul's talking about here. You see, weak in faith here is better translated weak in the faith. You see, this weak brother here has been received and accepted by God. He is in the faith. And of course, as we read on in verse 4, though, we see that Christ, his master, is able to make him stand. And in verse 8, we are told he is living unto the Lord and so forth. So what I'm saying is there is no question that these weak Christians here are nevertheless Christians who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, that tells us then that these disagreements here that they have with one another and the applications of these disagreements, they are not over matters that are essential to the Christian faith. You see, my point here, brethren, is that the apostle is obviously not saying here that we are to receive as Christians those who differ on matters like adding works to the gospel. Because, I mean, Paul said in another place, didn't he? If anyone <laughs> preaches another gospel uh, by adding works to it, let him be accursed. Again, I say, let him be accursed, though. Uh, and Paul has already told us earlier on in Romans that there are certain things that are essential to, to saving faith. You know, a person cannot be saved without believing certain things from the heart, he told us in chapter 10. Like the deity of Christ, that Christ is Lord, coming under his lordship. The one who does not have Christ as king over them is not in the kingdom. Someone must believe in the humanity of Christ and believe that God has raised him from the dead and paid for our sins and so forth. And so, the fact that these weak Christians have been accepted by God, then that tells us that these differences of opinions, opinion here and the application of these, they are over what you might call secondary issues that are not essential to salvation. You see, Paul, Paul again, he's, he's certainly not saying here that we are to receive professing Christians who differ on matters essential to saving faith because God has not received those people. He's willing to receive them, of course, but they continue to reject them, him. So then, uh, these, weak, uh, these Christians in verse 1, they, they may be weak Christians and wrong over certain matters, but they are in the faith. God has received them. So they are right... These people, they're right about key doctrines essential to salvation. You see, if you were to ask these people for the reason for the hope that is within them, if you were to ask them the question, why should God let you into heaven? They would not hesitate to say, because of Jesus Christ. I am fully accepted by God because of what Christ has done for me. And so then, if weak here, if it does not mean a weak faith, as in lacking assurance, then what does it mean? How are these Christians weak, is what we want to answer now. Well, this is the next thing I want you to get here. They are weak in the understanding of the Christian faith. 
In verse 2, Paul says, One person believes, you see, this is his understanding of the Christian faith, that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. That's his understanding. Now, when Paul says here that the weak Christian eats only vegetables... It obviously is not saying he's weak because, well, you know, he needs to get a good state down him. You see, what's going on here, to, to give you some examples, is some of these Christians in the Church of Rome, again, they, some were from a Jewish background, and so all they had ever known is these strict dietary laws uh, that they are not to eat certain things. That's what they grew up with. And so... Some of these have not yet come to a correct understanding that they are free as Christians to eat all these unkosher meats that were being sold in these markets in Rome. Remember, even for the Apostle Peter, this took him a while to get, didn't it? You know, first he was saying, no, Lord. And on the other hand, you have some Christians from this church who were from a pagan, a non-Jewish background. And so, because they knew that the the meat that was sold in these markets in Rome, only a few days before had been sacrificed to Zeus or some other false god, with all sorts of immorality going on there, well, these Christians, some of these may have thought they were sinning by eating this meat. And of course, Paul certainly addresses that one in, in 1 Corinthians in a parallel passage there. Uh, Now, there are a number of things that could be going on here. But basically, the upshot of this is that these weak Christians here, they believe they are sinning against God by eating certain foods or, or, or not observing certain days in a certain way and so forth. Uh, you see, that is the upshot. They think they're sinning against God if they do these things that are not actually sin. Uh, you know, it's not kind of a eating vegetables as a lifestyle choice. The issue here is they think they're sinning against God by not eating or not observing certain days. And so, the way they are weak then is they are weak in their understanding of the Christian faith. As Paul concedes in verse 14 and also in verse 20, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that in the Christian faith nothing is unclean in itself. So Paul states a fact there twice, doesn't he? That there, there is no clean or unclean foods in the Christian faith. Uh, Those Old Testament dietary regulations for the Jews, they were only temporary for a a specific time until the coming of Christ. And and regarding meat that had been sacrificed to idols, Paul made it clear in Corinthians, didn't he? That since those idol gods don't exist, then there's nothing inherently wrong with eating the meat afterwards. You know, just... Treat those fairy tales as a bit of a joke. Enjoy the meat. Get on with it. But you see, Paul makes a point, both there and here, both there in Corinthians and also here in Romans, that not all Christians have come to this knowledge. They've not all come to this understanding yet that it is okay to eat these things. And so, the way in which these in the church are weak 
is they are weak in their understanding of the Christian faith. Uh, They may have come to a correct understanding on the main things of the Christian faith, if you like, that are essential to salvation. They are in the faith, they are accepted by God. But in regards to the liberty to eat these certain things and so forth, they have not yet come to the full understanding of the Christian faith. So that is what is meant by a weak Christian. Now then, let's ask a question here though. Why is it that why is it that Christians even have differences of opinion over matters like these? I mean, why do we not all come to a a correct understanding on these things instantly? Well, let me give you a few reasons. One is one I already gave at the start, and that is before we become Christians, we all come from different backgrounds. We all come with a complete different set of ideals of what is right and wrong, and that affects our understanding. But another reason why Christians have these types of differences is because we are all at different stages of growth in our Christian life. And when you're born again, you become a babe in Christ. And over time, you increase in learning. You grow up and come to maturity. Well, growth, it takes time, doesn't it? You remember the Apostle John speaking of different levels of maturity, little children. Those young in the faith, then fathers in the faith. Uh, Paul speaks here of those who are stronger and weaker in their understanding. And then, of course, another reason for these, why Christians have these type of differences, is confusion by false teachers and false teachings. Uh, I mean, the early church we see in the New Testament, they were certainly troubled, weren't they? By false teachers, we we see many of the the epistles to the, the letters to the New Testament church were were wrote warning them and correcting them. Uh, uh, for instance, of certain men who came in to spy out their liberties, false teachers though who were saying that in order to be a Christian, Christ is not enough. You have to be circumcised and keep all these Jewish dietary laws and regulations and so forth. And then you have another group of false teachers who troubled the early church called the Gnostics. They were teaching things like sex is bad, even in the context of a marriage, and it's better to abstain. But my point is that false teaching can lead to all sorts of confusion. It did in the first century, and it it still does today. So that's another reason why Christians have these differences. And of course, I I think it's fair to say that intellect is going to have an effect on this as well. You know, I know understanding the scriptures is a spiritual thing, but if the intellect is involved to to worship God with our mind, if people are slower than others at grasping certain things, then that's going to have its effect as well. But those are just a few of the reasons why Christians are at different stages in the Christian life and have different understanding on these things. But another question that must be asked here is that if something is not inherently wrong, then what does it matter if someone does it? I mean, 
If it's not a sin to eat these meats, if a Christian has liberty to enjoy them, as Paul says, you know, twice here, they clearly do, then why does he speak so strongly against causing another brother to eat these who has a difference of opinion? Well, the answer, I believe, is, is found in a person's attitude or motive. You see, let me give you an example. Supposing one of my children asked me, can they do a certain thing? And I answer, yes, you're free to go and do that. Have a good time. But supposing, for whatever reason, my child mishears me. And the answer they think I've said is, absolutely no way, do not ever do this thing. Now, I've said they are allowed to go. But they don't know that. They, they think I've said the absolute opposite. And so if they go, then they're going in rebellion, aren't they? You see, that is what Paul means in verse 23 here when he says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever is not done in good conscience before the Lord is sin. As he says there in verse 23, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because he is not eating from faith. You see, although the Christian has freedom and liberty to eat those things, if the person does not know that yet, then his conscience is going to condemn him. And that is what Paul is concerned about here, brethren. Not making other Christians go <coughs> against the conscience. And you see, that there is, as you read the New Testament and the letters of Paul, there's, there's no doubt that he regarded having a good conscience before God as something vital to the Christian life. I mean, this just comes up again and again, doesn't it? It's one of the goals of our instruction, having a good conscience. A, a person's conscience is kind of like a moral compass. And the word itself means with knowing. When you see, when someone goes against the conscience, they are going against the better judgment. They are going, when someone goes against the conscience, they are going against what they understand to be right. And in the case of a believer in the New Testament, the conscience is always related to what they understand to be right or wrong before God. You see, when a believer goes against their conscience, they are going against what they know or what they currently understand to be right before God. Uh, you know, the, the, you see the Bible, I mean, it warns against a defiled conscience, doesn't it? Going against it and so defiling it. You see, the, an analogy given is uh, a conscience being seared with a hot iron. Uh, the analogy is, is like a, a piece of flesh, like your skin, and you get a hot iron, you know, at the moment it's sensitive. It has nerves, but you get a hot piece of iron and burn it, it's seared. And so it no longer has any feeling in that. You can prick it all you like, but it no longer has any sensitivity. You see, a person can desensitize their conscience by going against it. By going against what you know or what you currently understand 
being right before God, you go against your, you can desensitize your conscience. You know, a common example of this is, you know, at first a person, a little child, may know something to be wrong, whether it be lying, stealing, taking drugs, some kind of sexual immorality. Well, when a person first does it, you know, even the milder things, you know, their conscience is going off like an alarm bell there, isn't it? It's hardly letting them move. It's telling the conscience when they first do something, even mild, that they know to be wrong, the conscience shouts at them saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, don't do it. And so, when they first go against their conscience, they have this huge battle, the person has this huge battle within themselves. There is a great fight there. They, they may go against it and lie and steal or, or do whatever against the conscience, but the conscience, while it's sensitive, it won't let a person have peace about it. But the more they do these those things, the more they go against the conscience, at first there is a battle, but the conscience eventually gets desensitized more and more, until, and so it becomes much easier to go against it. Where they get to a stage where they can do things that they would never once have imagined. You see, that is what it is to have a, a defiled conscience, though. You know, the, the conscience, it's kind of like we used to have a, a neighbor who lived on our street whose car alarm always went off all of the time. The car alarm's a warning, isn't it? But it got to the stage where, I mean, someone could have took the wheels off his car. And no one would have bothered looking out of the window. I, I think this was in the days where car alarms were new, and I think he was just showing off that he actually had one. But, but you, you understand then the importance of having a good conscience and the importance of not defiling it, which is Paul's point here. And you see, just like that car alarm became background noise it didn't move anyone to do anything you see that's what it's like going when we, we go against our conscience see, we can render it useless now going back to that analogy then of one of my children if I say one thing if my children ask me something and I say one thing and they're constantly hearing me say the exact opposite but probably you, some of you mothers feel like that but if I say one thing to my children they are constantly hearing me say the exact opposite there's a slight problem there isn't there you see my point here brethren is that these uh, is Paul Paul is certainly not saying here that these misunderstandings do not matter and so never discuss them Paul is not saying here that they may be weak in their understanding, but never try to help them. Let them stay weak. And we can be sure of that because Paul himself, in the very text here, he gives the correct and stronger understanding, doesn't he? In verse 14 and then later in verse 20, he flat out tells them, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that in the Christian faith, that nothing is unclean in itself. And he does the same in the parallel passage in 1 Corinthians. There again he lays down the truth there. That since those idols, those meats. Since what they have been sacrificed to nothing. 
you know, because there is no other God beside the Lord, then a Christian is free to eat that. <coughs> it just comes straight out with a stronger and correct understanding. You see, the point I'm making here, brethren, is both these letters, Romans and Corinthians, would have been read in these churches. And Paul, he was not afraid of giving them the correct truth on this matter. He doesn't think, well, there are some Christians in this church who have a different opinion on this. And so, I better not mention the truth in case I offend them. Remember, he even calls them weak Christians here. Weak in the faith, weak in their understanding. You see, those people would have heard Paul say that about them. I mean, is it not normally the case where those who are of the more legalistic, I know this was true of me when I was bound in legalism, uh, is it not the case that those who are more of the more more legalistic and have the long list of strict rules of what a Christian can't do, they often imagine themselves as the strongest in the Christian faith and, and everyone else is compromised? I mean, Paul says such, doesn't he, in verse 3? Notice in verse 3, not only have the ones who eat been despising those who abstain and looking down on them, but those who have been abstaining, he says, they are judging those who eat. So the weak, the more legalistic Christians in this church, they have been condemning the others. I mean, so... If they're thinking themselves as strong, and I mean, you could almost imagine their disdain here when Paul addresses them as weak. You see, when Paul says in verse 5 here, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, well, you know, obviously, Paul is obviously not saying there that these things don't matter, guys. And so whatever, thing, whatever you think is true to you is, uh, is true to you. I mean, obviously Paul is not saying that here. That's another misinterpretation of that verse. But you see, but what he's saying is before doing something, someone should be properly convinced according to Scripture. Remember, the, the context here is someone coming to a more fuller understanding of what is right and wrong before God. You see, Paul's point is that we don't push people into doing certain things when they are convinced they are sinning by doing those things. But what we are to do, we are to first help them and bring them to a correct understanding and then in good faith, you see, uh, they can, with a clear conscience in this case, they can enjoy these meats. But you see, this... Paul points out in this passage it must be done patiently and lovingly. Uh, as notice this, Paul said, Paul begins this in verse 1 by saying, Welcome him, the one who is weak in understanding, but not to quarrel over opinions. You see, is it not true there are some Christians today who they will only speak to so-and-so who has a difference of opinion in order to correct them on that certain thing. You know, every time they get together, it's like, let's get the pistols out. Let's have this verbal fist fight over the same things we've already discussed for like five hours a day every time we meet. 
can go over, you know, we've already elbowed each other in the face about 22 trillion times. Let's go over all those old arguments again. You see, when we act like that, brethren, I think it's more a case of trying to prove we're right than acting in love towards the other person. And and Paul, he's certainly condemning that type of thing here. You see, that's not being patient or loving and understanding towards others. Yeah. And another thing I want to point out here, and this is important, uh, and this is something that Paul points out, is that these Christians, they don't have these differences because of some sort of compromise. You see, Paul, notice he clearly points out in verse 6 that the one who does not do and the one who does, they are both doing it to the Lord. They are both doing what they do, whether they do or don't do it, in honour of the Lord. Paul makes it quite clear to them here. You see, is it not common for Christians to think, the only reason they don't see it my way is because they're compromised. I mean, the weak Christians here, Paul says, they're judging the strong. They're thinking, they really know they shouldn't be eating this meat. They really know they shouldn't be doing those things on the Sabbath day. That they really know it's wrong not to keep all our rules and regulations, but they have no interest in following the Lord. They're just walking in, in disobedience. That's the way the weak Christians are judging the strong here. But Paul says to them, who are you to judge the servant of another? It, Paul's basically saying there, look, it's not his relationship to you that matters first. So, don't try and make people bow bow down before you. It's his relationship to the Lord that matters above all. And God is able to make him stand. So don't try and make him bow to your conscience by being impatient and by judging him. You see, that's when people are, you know, judging and bowing down on one another, that they make people feel uneasy and, and bow down to their conscience. You know, the, the Lord alone should be Lord of our conscience. But then, you have the stronger Christians here despising and being impatient with the weak. You know, when I think about this, it often amazes me, and this would certainly been true in, in my life in the past, that we as Christians, we can take a long time to get something, can't we? You know, we can take a long time to come to a correct understanding about a certain thing. But from the moment we do, we can be insensitive or impatient with someone else who does not instantly see it our our way, even though it took us two years to get to that position. You know, it took us two years to get to something, and the moment we do, it's like we're instantly impatient with others. But... That, that's all important to get, brethren, because if we are going to, if we're going to act and be patient towards others, you see, we're not going to do that, are we, if we just write them off as compromised, because they don't instantly see things our way. You see, they may be doing what they're doing sincerely before the Lord, and the Lord's able to make them stand. So then, with all 
that explained, you're with me so far? With all that explained then, what about this matter here of being careful that our liberty, our freedom to do certain things as a Christian is not the cause of stumbling others? Uh, The original question, of course, you see, was one of balance between not falling into legalism and not causing another to stumble. What is the balance here? Because, I mean, think about this, brethren. You know, when our Lord Jesus, he was walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath day, picking off those heads of corn there, and the Pharisees who were following them took offense. Jesus didn't rebuke them, did he? And say, look, we're trying to win these guys. So don't cause unnecessary offense by parading your liberty in front of them. And showing that we do not keep the strict Sabbath laws. In fact, it seems Jesus went out of his way to offend those guys. Purposely healing people. Constantly breaking the Sabbath regulations right in front of them. When the Pharisees were offended because Jesus did not do all... uh, all, And his disciples did not do all those hand-washing rituals they had before they ate. Jesus did not say to them, look, we don't want to offend these uh, people unnecessarily. We want to win them. So just do for now their interpretation of the law. And what about when Paul strongly rebukes Peter to his face? In front of others, it says there in Galatians. And Paul wrote about this in a letter, didn't he? And so every Christian in every church eventually heard what Peter did and all the Christians down the ages. I mean, you know, we tend to think of Peter, don't we, as the one who had a problem with pride. Well, I mean, he may have lacked humility at the beginning of his walk with the Lord. You know, when he said there, even if all others will deny you, I will never deny you. But he was certainly humbled by the end, we see, though, don't we? I mean, that must have been no little thing to take for Peter. I mean, imagine... uh, It's like someone rebuking you, but um, not just rebuking you, but you find it's on the front cover of all the newspapers or (laughs) everywhere. You see, Paul wrote there in Galatians 2 about rebuking Peter to his face and listen to what he says for before certain men came from James Peter was eating with the Gentiles before these men came Peter was enjoying his Christian liberty eating with the Gentiles Peter was lapping up his pork spur ribs and having a a French style steak where you plunge the knife in and all the blood Paul's out. You may think that's wrong, but Paul says you're a weak Christian if you do. (laughs) By the way, I do think it's kind of vulgar (laughs) when I see blood pour out like that, but uh, I don't think it's the same. But when, after these people came, Peter drew back, it says, and he separated himself. He would no longer do that anymore. Fearing the circumcision party, it says. Those Judaizers who are coming, telling everyone you have to keep all these Jewish laws as a Christian. 
you see, he suddenly acted different in fear of offending man. Now, what I want you to notice here, though, is the result of Peter's conduct. Because there is an important lesson here. And don't turn there, you'll miss what I'm saying. But in Galatians 2, verse 13, this was the result of Peter suddenly acting differently. It says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. So the rest of those ethnically Jewish Christians, the who were following the example of Peter's conduct, were led astray. And so when he stopped eating with the Gentiles and and he started observing all these Jewish regulations again, so did they, because they were influenced by Peter's example. But it gets even worse, because listen to verse 14 of Galatians 2. But when I, that is Paul speaking, saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? If you, Peter, who was born a Jew, could not keep all these laws, they only condemn you. Then why are you compelling Gentiles, he said. And part of the way he was, well, basically the way he was doing this was by his conduct, by his example. Why are you compelling them to keep these laws? You see... The point I'm making here, brethren, and this is especially true in the example of a pastor or or just someone who is generally thought of as a a, a maturer or experienced Christian, anyone basically who others will look up to and follow your example. If that person is living in the realm of legalism, they are putting others into bondage, is my point. This could be true as parents as well with our children. Just like Peter, when he was living in the realm of legalism there, he was putting others into bondage. When we live in the realm of legalism, by our example, we can put others into bondage. If a pastor, or as I said, just merely another Christian who who look up as examples to follow, and that is a lot of Christians... If they are enjoying certain liberties in private, but just in case others are offended, they keep certain things completely secret from others. And so all others see of their Christianity is some kind of legalistic stern appearance. Then just as it did in Peter's case here, you see, it will lead others astray and put them in bondage. Give them the impression that Christianity is just keeping this stern appearance, frowning things. You know, it dawned on me quite recently back home, as I'm visiting brethren, that I'd go into the kitchen and I'd be looking for a cup or something and I'd see a bottle of wine hidden away. And I'd be like, oh, I didn't know you drink. I thought you was a teetotaler. That's the impression I got of that. Now this was like somewhere between a third to a half of the houses 
in our church. You know, not everyone drinks, and that's fine. It's up to them. That's not the issue. But you see, what dawned on me here is that there are a lot of Christians, at least in our church, who do drink alcohol privately. But when they're around other Christians, whether it be in their homes or going out for a meal together, they give the false impression to the others that they are teetotalers. Do you see the problem there? You see, number one in their conduct, they're treating every other Christian as a weak Christian, as if they have a problem with alcohol. You know, fine, just ask them. And if they do have a problem, act appropriately. But number two, the second problem with that is they're just spreading an atmosphere of legalism. You see... We, we found this in our church. Part of the couple A meets couple B for dinner. Both of them would drink alcohol in private on maybe a special occasion. But person A won't, won't do it because they think person, person B is a teetotaler. And person B thinks person A is a teetotaler and so forth. When in fact, when they're alone, they both have it. You know, I went to Belgium recently, and I love seeing the, the liberty they had. Uh, Belgium is fa- uh, famous for its for its beers, and after church on the Sunday, they went for a meal, and they all had a beer with their Sunday meal, a bottle of beer there. Now, I, I couldn't have one. I can't drink beer. I have an allergy to gluten, so that, that stuff does me in. And it, But... You know, it was great for me to see them just enjoy a beer. They weren't getting drunk. They were just enjoying it to the glory of God, a kind of custom they have there. In fact, they they seemed offended with me because I ordered a coffee instead. I mean, they, they, was, uh, they started kind of really despising, if you like, <laughs> um, because I, I was ordering a coffee there. But I was like, guys, it's an allergy, okay? <laughs> you, you know, because, but it was an offense to them. Because, as I said, Belgium is known for its beers. To turn down a beer there is like going to Switzerland and, you know, turning your nose up at their chocolate. But, of course, no one ever did that. (laughs) But, you see, what I'm saying with all this, brethren, is there's got to be a balance. You know, we've got to be careful both ways. You see, we can make people stumble by hypocrisy by living out liberty in private, but then in public giving this impression of a a legalistic, lifeless Christianity. As Paul says in verse 17 of Romans 14 here, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, what's happening there is rebuking them for giving the false impression that, that the kingdom of God that being a Christian is a matter of eating and drinking. They was giving the impression to others by their conduct that it's all about observing these strict dietary laws, rules and regulations. But Paul says, no, it's about a relationship with a person. You know, it's not about uh, we, you know, observing all these certain days and so forth. You see, Paul rebukes them by their conduct, though. They're giving a false impression of Christianity. And so, what I'm saying is that how we act towards others 
you've got to be careful not to give a false impression of Christianity. I mean, in verse 1 here, we see that these Christians, they were not only differing in opinion over these things, but having the same view on these things had become a condition for fellowship. Because notice in verse 1 here, that's why Paul has to tell them to receive each other. They weren't accepting each other as Christians. You know, or maybe they said, well, you can be in that church congregation over there as far as away from me as possible. And I'll be in this one. They weren't accepting each other as Christians because of a difference of opinion over these things. But also, when they finally got together, every time they did, all they wanted to do was to correct others' views on these things. As we see, that's why he says in verse 1 there, but not to quarrel over opinions every time you get together. You see, let me ask you this, what sort of false impression does that give uh, to the world of Christianity? That Christians break fellowship or won't receive each other over these types of things. Or are just always quarreling about these types of things. You see... That gives the false impression that Christianity, again, is about being right about those little things. You know, it gives the impression that that, that's the important thing about being a Christian, that you're right about those little matters. False impression. But also, regarding being off balance, there are some Christians who argue things like, I keep bringing alcohol up, but it's just the easiest way to illustrate this and it's in the text but there are some Christians who argue things like you know a Christian should never touch alcohol in public never have it at a wedding ever not even use wine at the Lord's Supper because if they do you say then sooner or later you're bound to cause someone who uh, you're bound to come across someone who has a problem and you might make him stumble. Have you ever heard that kind of thing? You know, it struck me when I was preparing to speak on this, you know, that for a number of years as a Christian, that was the only interpretation or practical application of this verse I heard. You know, never bring alcohol out in public in case someone may have a problem with it. And it struck me that most of those giving that that interpretation don't actually drink any alcohol anyway, and so they've rendered this verse application free for them. Well, that's a great sacrifice, isn't it? Or, or they have a big sacrifice where they say, you know, don't put your Bibles on the floor when you're in uh, Egypt or somewhere. Wow, big sacrifice. But you see, that thinking there, that is definitely off balance. It's completely wrong. It's unscriptural. Because to say that, that's accusing our Lord Jesus Christ of being irresponsible when he turned water into wine at the the wedding of Cana. Uh, And and also, uh, you have uh, the Lord's Supper there. Sorry, I'm having a Kindle... uh, (laughs) 
You see, that kind of thinking is accusing Paul of being irresponsible. When he was writing, let's not forget, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and not only did he reiterate Jesus' command to drink wine at the Lord's Supper, but he then said, didn't he? Because you have that view, don't you? Grape juice only for communion, a lot of churches, because um, you can only use grape juice because you may make someone stumble. But not only did Paul reiterate Jesus' command to use wine at the Lord's Supper, but he said in Corinthians, such as to drunkards, such were some of you. There were ex-drunkards, people who had formerly a problem with alcohol in the Corinthian church. But you know, I've heard people argue, well, yeah, we, we should never use alcohol at the Lord's Supper because, you know, just... One little tiny drop can send someone off if they've got a problem. It can send them off on a four-day drinking session. Do you see the problem with that kind of thinking? It's basically saying, well, you know, Jesus and Paul, they were just primitive people. They didn't know what we know today. If they knew what we had knew, they wouldn't say those things that they said. You know, a while back, I remember seeing a cartoon thing is uh, a guy who does Christian cartoons with a meaning on it's kind of spread all over Facebook and other social media and you know I, I like some of his cartoons he does some good stuff but one of them taught the lesson that a Christian should never have a picture on their social media or on the Facebook or whatever enjoying the liberty of let's say you know being out for a week meal and having a glass of wine there just in case another Christian sees it and may be offended by that, or someone who has a problem with alcohol. He was saying there in his cartoon. But again, you see what that's doing? That's accusing the Lord Jesus and Paul here of being irresponsible at the wedding of Cana in 1 Corinthians. That is accusing the Holy Spirit of being irresponsible because wine is put forth as a positive thing and it placarded in both the Old and New Testament. Again, my point thus far, brethren, is just that we don't want to lead others astray by leaving the false impression that Christianity uh, and, and, um, uh, binding them to an example of what we're giving. We don't want to lead others astray by giving them a false impression of what a Christian is and binding others to, to a false example of, of legalism. You see, one principle here, brethren, in these verses is that we should never be led by legalism. You see, those who are more legalistic may think of themselves as the stronger and judging and condemning everyone else. But Paul calls them here the weaker Christians. And obviously Paul is not saying here that the weak should lead the church and instruct the, and instruct the strong Christians on how to be weak in their understanding. Paul said in 1 Corinthians one twenty nine, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If they think something is wrong, you see, he says, don't push them into doing it. If someone thinks someone is sinning, then don't push them into doing it before they come to a correct understanding. 
But he then makes it clear that he's not saying that your conscience should be lorded over by another. You see, these verses here, they've often been abused by people just wanting to bind others to their convictions. You know, you see, quite often those who go around insisting that you can't do this or or that because it may offend so-and-so, many times they're not that interested in so-and-so. What they're interested in in, is everyone else living up to their convictions and, and rules and regulations on these things. You see, here's the difference in not being a stumbling block. This is kind of what it boils down to, you see. Is your action really going to cause another to stumble? Is it going to cause them to sin and go against the better judgment of what they know to be right or wrong before God? Or are they just offended because you don't agree to their traditions and so they're trying to make you bow down to their convictions see that's what it really boils down to is it really going to cause them to sin and go against their conscience against their better judgement of what is right or wrong before God or are they just offended because you're not taking heed to their traditions and they want you to bow down to what to their conscience you see normally if they're despising and condemning like a Pharisee then I, I strongly suspect it's the second category that what you're doing is not going to cause someone to, to go against the conscience but they're offended because they want you to bow down to their convictions again I mean, there is a huge difference between that, between someone just wanting to lord over another's conscience or they're offended because they don't have a... um, because they don't come to the same view on some and others don't keep their traditions. There is a huge difference between that and someone who is genuinely grieved and genuinely caused, tempted to, to, to want to do whatever. You see... Let me tell you, give you an example of how this works in practice at our church back home in Manchester. You see, over the years, we have had just great joy in seeing people come to our church who have been, for whatever reason, bound up in legalism. And as I said, that was me at one time. But we are patient with them. We don't try to force them to go against their conscience and try to be careful not to. And over time, and this takes years, as their understanding increases, we see the legalism drop off. Bit by bit, as they grow in their understanding. And that is just glorious. That is what it should look like. The person is always acting with a good conscience before the Lord. They may have had liberty earlier to do certain things but they don't understand it and so they're waiting we try and help them come to a correct understanding but we're patient we're not despising them you know it takes time it takes years we're not bringing it up every two seconds but the person doesn't go against their conscience there and over time they come to a correct understanding and 
you see the, the legalism fall off and they're just enjoying the liberty to the glory of God. But let me tell you, see, there is a huge difference between that than other people we've had come to our church who have an unteachable spirit who effectively set themselves up as teachers normally by stealth trying to draw disciples away attempting to bind their legalism on others you see again obviously Paul is not saying here that we let those who are weak be teachers in the church and bind their convictions on others Paul, I mean, he has strong words to say about those places, uh, about those people in other places. Warn the unruly. You see, in verse 13 here, Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on uh, on one another any longer, but rather decide, this is to be a governing principle for us, rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. This is a, a governing principle here. Let us not pass judgment any longer, but rather decide this is to be a governing principle never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Uh, as Jeff Thomas, uh, a godly pastor in Wales who Mac Tomlinson goes over to see when he comes to see us in Manchester as he said on that said about that verse you know we can do a lot of things that may cause offense or or stumble others without even realizing again you know we we can do things can't we that may stumble others or cause offense without realizing it and we regret it afterwards but that is not what Paul is talking about here you see the imagery here used in the language is knowing someone else is coming your way and putting something in their way, a stumbling block to purposely try and trip them up. Let me give you an example. Another Christian you know has a deep conviction about what they they cannot do on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day. Now, you may have to church... Be free to watch a, a, something like a sports game on TV on a Sunday with a few others, and that's fine. You have liberty to enjoy that to the glory of God. And you don't have to keep it secret from that other person who has all them strict laws. If he's judging you for it, then he's in sin, Paul says here. Just as you would be in sin for despising him for living up to his convictions. You know, it was interesting, right before I came, there was the new presenter of the BBC breakfast morning TV show who was a Christian, and he had it wrote in his contract that he couldn't work Sundays. Now, I I think we should keep the Lord's Day, but, you know, as far as going to work after church on a a Sunday, uh, I don't have any problems with that. The early Christians certainly did. But I tell you what, I was praising God for this man standing up for his convictions there unto the Lord. So, what I'm saying is, in this, for this example, you don't have to keep your conduct secret from him. But listen, there is a difference between inviting that person over 
telling him, why don't you come over to our house after? We're having an extended fellowship time. Without mentioning that you're about to watch a sports game, which you know he would think he's sinning against the Lord if he did. And so, you see, you're enticing him to go against his conscience. You're deliberately putting a stumble block his way. (coughs) You're trying to desensitize his conscience. This could be done with someone who has a conviction about never drinking alcohol. And then another person says to them, another Christian says, Ah, you know that trifle, or do you know that uh, uh, cake you made, Christmas cake? You ate before, it was laced with it. Feeling a bit tipsy, are you now? See, it's not that bad, is it? I know people who've done that. You see, they weren't Christians, but I know people who've done that. You see, you see what what I'm saying with this example, though. They are, they are enticing someone to do something before their conscience is properly informed. You see, rather than being patient with them and trying to properly inform their conscience over, maybe it's going to take a long time, you'd have to bring it up every week. But what they're, you see, what they are attempting to do is make them, they are trying to deliberately make them go against their conscience. They're trying to desensitize. Rather than coming to a correct understanding and then they can do whatever liberty before the Lord to get them to that position, they're trying to make, they're trying to desensitize the conscience in order to get. So you see the difference. Let's not forget here that Paul, he also addresses the weak. And if another Christian is doing something they don't think is right, like in this example in our text, drinking alcohol or eating certain meats they don't agree with in their presence. Paul, he urges the weak not to frown upon the strap, uh, upon the strong and try and bind them, bind them to their conscience. You know, you see, you know, we speak of peer pressure, don't we? You know, we say one of the benefits of homeschooling is you don't have all this peer pressure. But... There's a lot of peer pressure in the Christian church. You know, with despising and judging, frowning upon because people do and don't do certain things. Trying to make the, you know, them lord over and not do certain things or act a certain way. We, we had someone come to our church who, he had a big conviction over... A woman should never have any jewellery or anything like that. Or he got into this Mennonite stuff at one time where she should have all her skin covered except her head. Or her face, rather. Because I think he thought she should have her head covered too. And I remember once a Bible study, he was dis- a completely lost person comes in and he's despising her. Because um, she had an ankle bracelet on. And he's like, he came to me and said, oh, that might, that might cause uh, someone to stumble. I said, brother, if that causes you to stumble, you've got serious problems. You see, the point is it wasn't causing him to stumble. He was just despising. And Paul, he urges the weak here not to frown upon the strong 
and bind their conscience with that kind of peer pressure. I'll, I'll leave you with this example, which is quite wonderful, I believe. Uh, John Wesley, I'm sure you've heard of the famous English preacher who rode up and down the nation sharing the gospel. Uh, one evening he was having dinner, John Wesley, with uh, a very wealthy man. And his daughter, he had a very attractive young daughter, I think about 18 years old, at the table with them. There was John Wesley, uh, the father, and this very attractive daughter, John Wesley and another Methodist preacher. And partway through the conversation at the dinner, this other Methodist preacher, he picked up this, she had rings, fine gold rings on all of her fingers. And no doubt some nail varnish there. And he picked up her hand, this other Methodist preacher, and he said, look at that, Mr. Wesley, in disgust he was. He said, look at that hand. Do you think that hand is fit for a daughter of a Methodist? And John Wesley, he picked up the girl's hand and he said, that is a beautiful hand. That evening, that girl hung on to every word that John Wesley preached. You see, my point is that if he'd have been like that other Methodist preacher, just shunning and despising her, she wouldn't have listened to a single word. You know, we've got to be careful how we walk. The impressions we, we give to others... In, in the balance of this what is right to do in one situation may not be in another but you know it's not a but let love dictate so let's close ourselves in prayer our father I pray you would help us to apply these truths in our lives I pray you would help us never to try and force another Christian or anyone to go against their conscience what they know in their better judgment or their current understanding to never go against what they know to be right before God but you would help us to be patient with them help them over time by our example to bring them to a correct understanding. And be mature in the faith. Forgive us, Lord, for the times we have just been quarreling over opinions, giving the pistols at dawn and, and impatient with others. In Jesus' name, amen. One more thought before we close, and that is yeah, another question. I mean, this could have been a whole sermon. <coughs> another question I was asked was, what is, what is the balance between Christian duty or holiness And, and, and Christian liberty when I was asked that question I said do you see the problem the seeing 
Christian liberty or Christian freedom as a day off from holiness, as time off. You know, never see your Christian uh, liberty or freedom to do certain things as time off from being holy. You know, it's not like we're being holy and then we, we have liberty to do other things and we're being unholy. You know, we're doing these things as to the Lord. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. As I said on Monday night, in your secular work, in your daily lives, see all the day is worship. Whether you're enjoying time with your family, whether you're, whether you're enjoying something yourself, whether you're going out at the bus stop evangelizing or being faithful in work. You know, never... You see, part of the thing, the problem is we've been duped into this idea that holiness is frowning upon certain things. Whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. And our duty, of course, as a Christian is to love. That is the greatest commandment. Amen. Thank you, brother. We're dismissed.